Stay tuned for Wine Crush, Northwest Wine Stories Uncorked. Welcome to Wine Crush, where winemakers tell the stories behind the vine. Thanks for joining us here on Portland Radio Project. Today, host Heidi Moore will guide us through the stories of two family-owned and operated wineries. The first maintains a small annual production as part of their commitment to offer the highest quality wines at exceptional values. And the second is the largest grape producer in the Elkton, Oregon AVA, whose core belief is that Oregon wineries should aim to be old world in the new world. We are talking with Beth Klingner from Dion Vineyards today. I'm so happy that you are joining us. And it wasn't much of a drive. It wasn't too bad, right? Not too bad. Just 26. <laughs> Which is questionable depending on what time of day and what day, really, for that matter. All days these days. So Dion Vineyards is outside of Hillsboro, mm-hmm. and it has quite the story. It's not a new vineyard. You've been around for a while. Yep. So my in-laws started planting in 1975, which is backing up a little bit. They actually bought five acres up the road on and planted that to Pinot Noir. So they bought that in 72 and planted in 73 was their first vineyard planting. But that five-acre lot was a buildable lot, so they could sell it 20 years later for a whole lot more money in Washington County. Um, But they bought the 10 acres that our winery is currently located on in 1975, started planting it. And that's the oldest block that we currently own. Um, Over the years, they expanded out to 60 acres. And my father-in-law loved growing grapes, loved having a vineyard. It was lots of fun. And he never wanted to make wine other than for projects and hobbies and fun. Got it. He did make the wine for my sister-in-law's wedding, which... How was was it? I was not there. It was... I, I hear it was delicious at the time. I don't think it has aged well. We did find one bottle in the basement. I'm a little afraid. (laughs) I want pictures and audio when you guys decide to open that to see exactly how it is. All right. It's Pinot Gris. So we have uh, 60 acres of vines, and the oldest plantings are from 1976. So one of the wines I brought is a 2016, which is 40-year-old vines. Uh, Most of the vineyard is self-rooted, which means that it was not planted on rootstock, which is there's a little louse called phylloxera that chews on grapevines and destroys them. And... Originally, when Oregon was planted, they didn't think it was around. It is around. It is creeping up the valley. We do not have it yet. Touch wood. (laughs) So we're maintaining our self-rooted vines, which are really cool. Uh, We have some stuff planted on rootstock, so we wouldn't lose the whole vineyard all at once. And it takes about five years to go away. It was actually pretty cool. When I came up to see you originally, we walked through the old vines, and they were like serious tree trunks with moss and all this character and beauty. And it it was a really fun hike. Um, We had Chaco, which is the vineyard dog, which always brings a lot of personality to everything going on down there as well. I like a lot of things with a lot of personality. My husband has a lot of personality. My dog has a lot of personality. Our wine tends to have a lot of personality. And that's not a bad thing. So it just it definitely um, brings you into a different spectrum as far as wine is concerned and bringing people to the vineyard. So where does Dion Vineyard come from? Because that is not your last name. No, it, it is my husband's middle name. And technically, he was founded two years before the vineyard. Um, <laughs> so <laughs> I love that. He uh, It's short for Dionysus, the Greek god of wine. Uh, as he says, my father named me after a Greek god. And 
I laugh at him. He's got a little air but, to him. Uh, <laughs> yes. Uh, it's So Kevin Johnson is a pretty generic name, and so he has this unique middle name, which is pretty cool. No kidding. So when did you guys step in to start making the wine and taking over the vineyard? Because your father-in-law wasn't interested. He was loved the grapes but didn't love the wine. Right. So uh, both Kevin and his sister Laura grew up in the vineyard, and child labor is legal when it's your own children. So they worked a lot hanging bird's nets and pull, and suckering and doing all the work in the vineyard. And so they did not have a they, – they were immersed in it, and as children do, they rebelled. So Laura went to Stanford. Kevin went to the Naval Academy as far away as you could get from a dirty, dusty vineyard in, during harvest. And he spent 10 years in the Navy and then decided that wasn't the life for him and came home and wanted to work with his dad. So he convinced his dad to let him start a small label. And in 2007, he started making wine. I met Kevin in 2010 at a little festival called Indie Wine Fest that is sadly dysfunctioned. It's gone now, but um, it was lovely. And uh, I was attending as a, an attendee because I was a pretty big wine geek in my own right. <laughs> and he had submitted his wines but not gotten accepted, so he was attending. And we met and started talking and spent the whole day together and that. And so, voila. Well, so then he asked me on our, what I call our first date. He calls it our second date. And we went to a place called Vino Paradiso, which is also defunct, but wonderful little wine bar in the Pearl. And he said, you want to meet me there? I said, yep. And he looked at the menu and said, uh, would it be wrong for a guy to order a glass of pink sparkling wine on the first date? I said, well, only if he doesn't order the whole bottle. So <laughs> it was kind of cemented at that point, <laughs> pretty much. And, and Dion Vineyards got its start. Right. And then if you are if you ever meet a winemaker, never say to them, hey, do you need any help? Because they always do. And that's how I got suckered into it. Well, I can't wait to hear a little bit more about the story and a lot more about the wine. So we're going to pause right there and we're going to talk more wine here in just a moment. Support for Wine Crush comes from Country Financial Insurance, offering simple steps today to solve big problems tomorrow. For more, go to countryfinancial.com. You've already told us how the winery started, and it all started over bubbles, which, amazing. Um, anytime you start a story with bubbles, it can't go wrong, right? I agree. Yes. But you guys have a different philosophy on what your wine is and, and what you're looking for annually. And so I'm going to let you kind of run with that a little bit, and then let's lead into some some of the wine we're drinking, because you started us with bubbles, <laughs> which is not a terrible thing. Um, and what a great way to kick off the show. Right. So my husband and I love bubbles. We drink a lot of them. We drink Gros Champagne. We drink Oregon Bubbles. We drink Cremant de Bourgogne. We drink a lot of different stuff. That's probably what we drink more of than anything else. And uh, we also drink a lot of Pinot Noir. The vineyard is the primary grape is Pinot Noir. And if you go to Champagne, which is where Champagne comes from in the region of France, then the primary grapes planted, there's seven grapes that are allowed to be planted in Champagne, but the three majority ones are Pinot Noir, Chardonnay, and Pinot Meunier. And so that's the traditional mix of Champagne. And our vineyard is planted primarily to Pinot Noir and Chardonnay and Pinot Gris, um, which is traditional Oregon. So we are pretty good traditionalists. Uh, we've been growing grapes for a long time and selling them to other wineries, and we have really good customers. We don't want to take all of the grapes and make all of the wine. First of all, we are just limited in size. When vineyards grow really nicely on hillsides, and the minute you put a winery on a hillside, 
First of all, you have to take out grapes, which is not popular with vineyard people. And secondly, you're digging into a hillside, and that gets really expensive fast. Uh, so we don't have a big winery. We have a tiny winery. And we don't want to break the relationships we have with our really good, awesome customers. So we wanted to keep our production small. One reason is to show what we think these grapes can do. We think we have a really good vineyard. Uh, it's not necessarily in the most famous parts of the Willamette Valley that uh, get lots of publicity, but we do think we have a good vineyard. And so by making our own wine, we can showcase just how good it is. And I'm not a huge fan of reviews, except that I am, um, because I have to be. But uh, this 2016 Old Vines Pomard that we just got, we just got the review from Venice yesterday and it got 93 points, Ooh, which makes me very happy. Congrats. But we've had a consistent well over 90 point reviews from several different well-known reviewers, which is really nice. So um, it's always good to be validated, in my opinion, because I think it's a great wine. <laughs> <laughs> for sure. For sure. And I mean, even though not everybody, you know, understands the point system or really cares about the point system, you're making great wine, whether it's scored or not. But when you get a nice score like that, it does. It gives you that validation and that little bit of, you know, pat on the back yeah. that you work so hard for. Yeah. Um, I just, I like having people agree with me. Yeah. Sometimes. And everybody does. You know, I love, but you do have a big spread. You have a lot of vineyard out there. And the fact that you are only taking a small portion of it to make what you're doing means that you're making small lots of wine. Yeah. And why, I mean, other than you don't want to take everything from it where, you know, everybody else is taking from and, and selling, you know, the good stuff out. Why are you doing such small lots of certain things? Um, so the two things that we really love are Pinot Noir and Bubbles. And we keep threatening to just back down. We're doing about a thousand cases production this days, and we are threatening to just do 400 cases of Pinot and 400 cases of Bubbles. And that is probably the two hardest things to sell in the Willamette Valley because <laughs> a lot of people make really good Pinot Noir. This is an awesome region for Pinot Noir, and there's a lot of really good stuff out there. But that's what we love, and that's what we drink, and that's what we're passionate about. So that makes more sense for us as a producer to do. I'm not sure it makes sense from the sales perspective yet, but uh, we are backing off production a little bit this year just because we have some new customers that we're selling to. And we're going to keep making bubbles. The 15 turned out fantastic. And we have a bubbles project underway in the summer. Is the 15 what we're drinking today? Yes. This is stunning. It is a beautiful bubbles. It's so great. It's so refreshing. And I do want to talk about your bubble program here and just... I don't know, a little drop of a hat, and we'll be back to talk more. You're listening to Wine Crush, one of our locally produced podcasts at Portland Radio Project. Get in touch, discover, listen at prp.fm. Well, we started talking about bubbles. We talked about it in the second segment. So let's go ahead and finish off the whole thing with some more bubbles and what you guys are doing. Because you do have like this bubble club or bubble something rather going up at the vineyard. And I want to know because I want to come. We have a special bubble project this summer. So uh, we do uh, small projects that we call special projects. We'll do two barrels of Pinot or weird little grape that we have growing in the vineyard sometimes. But um, bubbles are our one true love. 
And I really love it. So we didn't make a base wine for bubbles in 2016. Uh, first of all, the harvest was super early and crept up on us. Secondly, we didn't know how well the 15 was going to turn out. And it turned out to be spectacular beyond expectations. And we're like, dang it, we should have made more bubbles. So uh, we started talking around and talking to some people in the industry. And we found some bubbles that were lost. And they're under- Which is interesting to me because... You said you had these lost and found things going on, and I'm like, mm, I'm not sure what that means and what that's going to look like. But I trust you, so I'm sure it's going to be amazing. So sometimes you make something with a, a buyer in mind or a project in mind, and then it falls through. That can happen in any industry, right? And it happens in the wine business. And then you sort of put the word out that, oh, these might be available, and you know, you, we just want to recoup our costs that we put into them. So we have bought under... I think it's under 200 cases of sparkling wine that is under crown cap. So it's finished its secondary fermentation and it needs to be finished off with dosage and disgorged and put the cork and the cage on and all of that. And um, so it was lost. We found it. So we're calling it Lost and Found. And there's some sparkling rosé and some brut and it's Ew, Did you say fabulous. sparkling rosé? I did. That is my favorite. Uh, you're going to love this one. It's really good. So I was just Andrew Davis or... Yeah, it's uh, Radiant Wine. He's amazing. Sparkling Wine Company. And yes. he has enabled a lot of people in the in the Valley to start making sparkling wine. And you're starting to see more and more of it and higher and higher quality. And he consults with us and helps us. And he does the final disgorging. But our quantities are so small that he doesn't do the whole thing. So we're in charge of a lot of it and do it by hand. I touched every single one of these bottles. <laughs> In the bottling Which, process. you know, honestly is a very prideful thing when you are so hands-on because you are a small winery. You have a small tasting room, mm-hmm. which, again, puts you in a little bit of a unique position in the fact that people need to seek you out. And you get a very hands-on, very um, personal approach and visit when you come out to die on. Yep. And we have some killer views, too. You do. So They're gorgeous. That, and, and good wine. Um but uh, yeah, I had to get a new business card and I needed a new title because sales and marketing didn't really cover it. And I decided to call myself the VP of logistics because that's what I do. If barrels need topped, I top them. If you know sales and marketing needs done, I do it. If a podcast needs recorded, I do that. <laughs> you know, if, if a we podcast to- host comes out and wants to drink wine, you do that as well. Yeah, yes. It's, logistics are not bad. <laughs> yes, no. My but, job is not terrible either. There's yeah. also you know sourcing bottles and labels, and there's a whole and compliance and shipping and a whole lot of things. I'm working on a new website, but it's all logistics. So where do people find you? So we are in the north end of the Shahala Mountains. We are just about five miles south of Hillsborough, off of sometimes Hillsborough Highway or Highway 219. If you're in Newburgh, you come up over 219. If you're in Hillsborough, you go down 219, and it's just north of Unger Road, which is what everybody knows. We're on Reedwig Road, which is an odd little name that For actually sure. means Vine Road, I think, in German. Somebody who speaks German told me that, but we're the only vineyard on there. It's hard to miss you. Yeah. We have some blue signs on Highway 219 and directional signs on uh, Simpson and Unger, and come see us. We're open Friday, Saturday, Sunday, 11 to 5. We just started summer hours, so we're opening all the way till 5 p.m. We're going to see how this works. Um, We have a little wine club, and we're pretty small, so we don't do big events. 
Although when the bubbles are ready this summer, the Lost and Found Project, we are going to do a couple parties in August. Um, I will make sure that I'm looking for that invite. So it better come to my mailbox. on my list. Yes. Well, Beth, this has been such a pleasure and so much fun. Um, Bubbly everywhere. So I can't wait to come back out to the vineyard and see you guys meet Kevin because I have not. And thank you. Thank you. You're always welcome. Support for Wine Crush comes from Country Financial Insurance, offering simple steps today to solve big problems tomorrow. For more, go to countryfinancial.com. Welcome back to Wine Crush, the podcast for wine lovers. Let's meet our next guest today, um, the hilarious and always colorful Tyler from Bradley Vineyards, who by far has had the longest drive here. I don't disagree. Yes. No, you are definitely, I think, on the record currently. Um, You have a great place. You're down in Elkton, which most people probably have no idea where that's at. Hashtag where's Elkton. Yes, definitely hashtag where's Elkton. So I'm going to let you start from the beginning because it's a long story and we got about four minutes and 45 seconds left to, okay. to put it in. Let's try this out. Okay, so I'm a second generation uh, wine guy and my dad planted our vineyard in 83. I was born in 85. Vineyard's two years older than me. And so I got a little bit of experience growing up in it. But honestly, I, I kind of did more of the 4-H FFA route where I was like raising livestock primarily sheep and cattle and chickens, I guess. Anyway, um, I would help in the vineyard. But at that time, we were simply a vineyard. And Elkton was home to three or four vineyards at that point. Elkton's a weird hidden gem of Oregon wine country, established early in the 70s. Uh, Ken Thomason, Bob Bingham were the kind of original planters. Dad was from California, uh, met my mother, who is a student at the University of Oregon. And uh, they met up. He was building houses in Douglas County, found Elkton, found this fixer-upper house, fixed it up, started a family. Around the time of the 80 recession, he's looking to farm and he uh, connects with Ken Thomason. Ken gets his hooks in him, says, hey, here's a site that I think you should plant. I'll get you started. Dad took his advice and then also kind of adjusted it. So we have this kind of strangely large, widely spaced, very roomy, call it the Cadillac Ranch Vineyard. And, I love um, that. <laughs> it's little like, Chris Ledoux yeah, homage. There yeah. we go. And it's a very special place. We only have 21 acres of our 50 planted Somebody recently called it bucolic, and I looked that up, and I was like, nailed it. That's exactly what that, you know what bucolic means? Um, I do not, so I'm hoping that you're going to kind of school me a little bit. It's like the idyllic farm setting. I'll buy that. It's a beautiful, humble farm nestled in the hills. So you were raised on this farm, other than the cattle and whatever, and I know you moved away. You moved far away. So how did you get back to your roots more, more or less? Uh, yeah, I, um, I was always encouraged to go explore. We hosted exchange students quite a bit growing up. And when I was 14, my parents put me on a plane with one of them back to Belgium. Uh, and his family then showed me around uh, Europe a little bit. And I got drunk for the first time drinking beer in Belgium. <laughs> like it was a very educational trip. And um, on so many levels. I know. And I think that might be the beginning of my training in winemaking. After college, I could have gone straight to the vineyard and 
after my first job, I could have gone back to the vineyard and second, third, fourth, whatever. And I climbed my way up in the corporate kind of world and I made it all the way to Chicago, you know, and I was trying to conquer the world. But I would be disappointed when my heart got broken by corporate America. And every time I'd have a conversation with my dad about coming home, unfortunately, dad kicked the bucket a little prematurely and forced my hand a bit. Bittersweet kind of thing. For sure. So you were in Chicago and then you ended up coming back after your dad passed away, which again, like what you said, it's super unfortunate, but it's been a great thing. And I want to come back to that in just a moment because that really lends to what you're doing now and the wines that you're producing. Sounds good. Hey, thanks for listening. Why not head over to iTunes and write us a review? We'd love to hear from you, and it helps others find out about our show. For new episodes of Wine Crush and to discover other PRP podcasts, check out the PRP Podcast Co-op at prp.fm. Pretty sure we left off with the fact that you were commuting back to Oregon, back to Elkton, Oregon, from Chicago after your dad passed away. So let's start back from there and and where it's kind of gone from there. I only say Chicago because that's the city I made it to, but I, really I came from Indianapolis directly. Um, and Ew. I had visited... Oh, I love Indianapolis. It's a great city. And I, I met very important people in my life in Indianapolis. So anyway, my hand was forced quite a bit, but my piece with it is that that was the only way I was going to come. Frankly, I was a bit afraid to come home to Elkton. I feel like my sister would say maybe I got a little too big for my britches, that um, maybe I had outgrown Elkton or that I felt that it was too slow paced. And what's funny is that I never had felt that way. I always loved Elkton as a kid. I went K to 12 in Elkton and like I had classmates, not the ones that went K to 12. They all appreciate Elkton. But people who would come in or move from somewhere else, they would complain about nothing to do. And that's not even close to what's going on in Elkton. It's an amazing, like you said, it's a gem. It's oh. We've driven through it for years. And now that I've met you, you gave me the grand tour of Elkton. And it was awesome. Yes. I mean, I had so much fun that day. It's a secret Hideaway. Uh, theme park. I mean, it's it's, yeah. a, it's your own private everything. Gym photo gallery. I mean, it's just, it's beautiful and it's perfect and it's peaceful and it resets you. You connect with nature, you connect with the calendar and weather and wine and food and people. And it's like, and honestly, what's, what's more in life than that? I mean, honestly, I mean, that's such a cool kind of bring together of all those things. And so you've kind of gone from one spectrum to the other and now you're back to really the simplicity of life and what really matters, which is family and nature and wine and food and, and all the things that bring you joy. So how did you go from big Mr. Corporate to um, really winemaker? Because that's what you're doing now for not just you, but for you know multiple wineries. Yeah, that's true. I, I mean, uh, the truth is I owe a lot of uh, my current I would say success simply out of happiness. It's not like I'm like famous or like rich, but uh, I'm super happy because I've learned that uh, this is in my blood. I mean, I was born for this and with this and around this, and I didn't even know how much I knew. And then when I moved home, I was actually first recruited by a different winery in Elkton, 
and I accepted the position. And a week or two before moving, River's Edge Winery lost their assistant. They had moved on to pursue an entrepreneurial pursuit. That's a little redundant, but anyhow, they. Uh, <laughs> That was just the perfect opportunity. Mike offered me an assistant winemaker position, which was a more competitive position, a little higher pay. And I knew Mike. I mean, I knew the guy. I knew everybody. Um, you know everybody in Elkton. Well, you That's don't just... not if you're from there, right? Yes. And so it was kind of, I felt a little bit like, oh, how do I do this? And Mike's advice was, you say you got a better offer. And I was like, okay. And I did. And that was all understood and all fine. Which is great because it's given you an open door to make multiple varietals, types, and styles of wine. And Mike is, he is a biochemist who is a teacher. And I mean, I couldn't be happier or more fortunate to learn winemaking. You know, dad said deliberately, don't necessarily pursue enology viticulture. I had at one point been pursuing that degree at Oregon State, and I shifted because of circumstances, just to be short. Sure. But the encouragement was pursue the passion that you're following currently. So do that now. And that's what led me out the door, out of Oregon, out to other things and collecting little things that will add to the foundation that dad put uh, in me from just growing up in Elkton and around the vineyard. It's amazing. I love that. I love so much. You and I connected very much on the 4-HFFA thing because of my ag background. But we need to talk wine. And Mm. so we're going to come back and talk wine because you brought us some beautiful bottles that are different than what you find in the Willamette Valley. So pause for wine and we'll come right back. Support for Wine Crush comes from Country Financial Insurance, offering simple steps today to solve big problems tomorrow. For more, go to countryfinancial.com. So we really haven't talked much about wine, but I do love the fact that we've touched on how you've come back to, I wouldn't say your humble beginnings, but definitely your rural beginnings and what brings you happiness, which I really think there's a lot of that kind of missing in today's society, today's world or whatever. And I just so buy into that on so many levels, but we need to talk about wine. Um, We could talk about the rest of that all day long. And uh, we will someday. But um, anyhow, I want to talk about your wine. Um, you do have a really cool setup in Elkton with your B&B and just your, just your location. It's really a unique place. So let's talk wine quick. I want to end on the yurt because I love the yurt. So fast forward to 2000, River's Edge Winery was established in Elkton. And that's where uh, John Bradley and Mike Lant met. Mike Lant hired me in 2015 when my dad passed away to help him and learn wine and have some cash flow so I could live in Elkton. And I owe a lot to Mike. So River's Edge was Elkton's first winery established in 2000. Our winery license came in 2001 due to just sort of a some grapes didn't sell. Uh, they sold and then were turned down due to circumstances. And that became our first vintage that we loved the 2001 Pinot. Um, And thus, uh, the relationship between Mike and John was born. They began exchanging dad with the vineyard expertise, Mike with the science and chemistry expertise. And Mike was trained by a guy up in the Willamette Valley who was a French-trained winemaker. His name is John Eliasson. 
And from there, Mike began his label, Bradley began theirs. Flash forward to now, I'm making wine for Mike, with Mike, and for Bradley at Mike's facilities. And that's River's Edge Winery. You've brought me a wine, or you've brought us a wine that I had never had before, and I'm sure you know people are familiar with it, but it's a Baco Noir. It is beautiful. You have an older um, version of it, and then you have the 2017 version of it. Totally different wines, but still have a great connection between what it is. What else beside that are you doing? Because I've had a little bit of your entire lineup. Uh, Baco is kind of the celebrity right now. And it's only because I think Oregonians in particular are pursuing big reds and Baco's as big as they come. If you like a jammy Zinfandel, you're going to like a Baco, but it's a jammy Zinfandel with acid. It's crazy. It's, it's great. It's nuts. It's, this is so my jam. It's, it's very hard to make. Uh, no, I'm not trying to toot my own horn here. It's not super hard to make. You have to just trust the numbers. It's crazy. The alcohol is high because you have to harvest when it's ripe. And a lot of people are too nervous to do that. But I have the fortune of having my dad's experience behind what I'm doing. He always said, if and when I want to come back and do this, the wine is handled. The vineyard is established. The hard part's done. Bring what you got. We'll teach you the rest. Unfortunately, I already got my lessons from dad, you know. Um, but Mike is carrying that flag for him now in a way that is just like the perfect fill-in. And consequently, I, I mean, like I read, so I'm paying attention to what's maybe a little more relevant and we'll experiment. And like we have a Pedalant Naturel bubbles that we're going to release at the end of the month. And we're very pumped about that. Any bubbles are great bubbles. It's hard to make good bubbles on the cheap. Pedalant Naturel is a movement that's kind of popular right now. Some are not good. Ours is outrageously good, and it's made from Riesling. We have these old vine Riesling plants that are acid bombs. We tend to make the Riesling a dry style. It's out of this world. It's way too underpriced. <laughs> so I'm going to say, because we are out of time, yeah. that you just have got to go to Elkton. They have a great B&B, or Airbnb, I'm so sorry, right. um, with the yurt. The location is amazing. The wine is fabulous. It's something that you're not going to find in the valley. So make the trip to Elkton, and now you've got to go back. Yeah. It's a little bit of a trip. Yep. So I want to thank you so much for joining us, and it's just been such a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for the ninth episode of Wine Crush Season 2. Have a great weekend, and we will see you at the bottom of the glass. Okay, welcome back to Wine Crush, the podcast for wine lovers. I could have sworn I heard a phone okay. ring. I'm so sorry. Okay. Okay, we'll start that over again. My bad. I literally thought I heard the phone ring.